Welcome to the My Psychology Podcast. Thanks for joining us. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm a psychology professor at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. I also happen to be the author of the My Psychology textbook from Macmillan Learning. In each episode of this podcast, instructors from various colleges and universities join me to talk about the most important and most interesting parts of the chapter to help you understand and appreciate them. As we do, we will share some stories about our own experiences with concepts from the chapter from inside or outside of the classroom. Okay, in this conversation, I am happy to be joined by two other instructors who teach the Intro Psych course using this My Psychology textbook. One is Dr. Deborah Roberts. She is a professor of psychology and chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University in Washington, D.C. Hi, Deborah. Hey, how are you? Good. Thanks for being with us. And also with us is Dr. Alan Whitehead. He is a professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University in the Blue Ridge Mountains in Virginia. Hi, Alan. Greetings. Thanks for being with us. So here's a quick summary of Chapter 7, Cognition, Thinking, Language, and Intelligence. The section on thinking covers lots of ideas, including concepts like superordinate, basic, and subordinate concepts, problem solving, decision making, algorithms, heuristics, dual process theory like type 1 and type 2 thinking, affective forecasting, creativity, divergent thinking, and convergent thinking. The section on language covers nativist and non-nativist theories of language, which disagree about whether language ability is inborn. Stages of language development in children, from babbling up to figurative language. Grammar. Extra-linguistic information, how language is spoken, not just what it includes. And linguistic relativity, or how language might influence thought. And the intelligence section covers definitions of intelligence, types of intelligence, the influence of genes and environment on intelligence, specific intelligence tests that psychologists use with clients, and problems with those tests, including test bias. So, Deborah, what's something important from Chapter 7 that you wanted to, to get into? Yeah, great. Well, you mentioned the different types of concepts, and you mentioned subordinate, basic, and subordinate. And I think it's really important for students to understand that as a framework on which we sort of try to organize concepts or, you know, our mental representations about things. So... One example I came up with, just because we're right off of the NBA season, <laughs> is um, for some people, NBA teams could be subordinate. So that could be something that generally talks about basketball, if you're a real basketball fan. So the basic concept for me would be NBA teams, National Basketball Association teams. The subordinate concept is <laughs> the Toronto Raptors because I grew up in Toronto. <laughs> so to me, that's an example of an NBA team, which is the basic concept for the subordinate concept, which may be sports teams in general. So the, you, you do a really nice job, I think, Andy, in the book of explaining how for some cultures or based on your expertise and so forth, a basic concept can actually be somebody else's subordinate concept or a subordinate concept can be somebody else's basic concept. So I think it's important for students to really understand the difference between those three things. And even though they present for us a way of organizing the information, there are different ways of doing that. So go Raptors. Well, I, I grew up in San Francisco Bay Area. I've been a oh, Warriors no! fan <laughs> since oh, wow. I was a kid and I finally had a team I could cheer for. 
So, Deborah, we might be frenemies now. The championship rivalry manifests right here on our little podcast. That's right. That's wow. great. Yeah, I, wow. I feel like crying now. We should switch to emotions and talk about chapter eight. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, but I, I I like I like what you're describing, Deborah, about about thinking about the NBA in, in terms of concepts because you're right. The like the NBA itself could be depending on how into it you are, it could be a superordinate concept, a basic concept, or a subordinate concept. You could always broaden out and, and consider just like basketball teams more generally, like including maybe the WNBA or college basketball teams or or even high school basketball teams. That could be a, a superordinate concept for some people. Or you could zoom in even more for somebody who is really, really, really into the Toronto Raptors. The Toronto Raptors could be the superordinate concept. And then you could break that down into, let's say, you know, players who play a certain position on the Raptors. The, you know, the guards could be a basic concept. The the forwards could be a basic concept. And then individual players could be the subordinate concept. So it, it all, it's, it's all, the main idea here is that it's all relative to your experience, the kind of where you're where you're coming from in terms of how you um, how you label what's super, superordinate, basic, or subordinate. Absolutely. So, Alan, I'll turn to you. Is there another concept from Chapter 7 that you wanted to, to focus on? Well, Deborah took my answer and oh, my championship. Sorry. But uh, <laughs> I really like the way that you move from learning in Chapter uh, 6 and then move into cognition. And in some ways, learning is very behavioral. It's very, it's the things that we do. And then it kind of moves internally where you start to think about these ideas of, of concepts and this mental representation of things. And I think that's a, a terrific transition uh, to be able to do that. I think it's important for students to understand these, these ideas. In fact, one of the examples I have or the activities, excuse me, one of the activities I have that we do in class is that I will have them create this conceptual uh, hierarchy, as, as it were, or these conceptual levels. And you'll see how some, they'll start to disagree or even argue in some ways of, of what's super and what's sub. And, and I had one student that actually started to create this web of how different things interacted and it might be as part of this thing and that thing. And, and it, it's fascinating to visualize and to see the way that our, our thinking uh, can be so linked and divergent. I could be talking about kind of this area and these concepts, but could be linked to another one, which is someone else's understanding and their idea and the way that they think and process that information. Yeah, it's super interesting. That activity sounds great, by the way. Since we're on the topic of concepts still, I wanted to talk a little bit about culture and concepts, just sort of related to what Alan was saying and how invested that student seemed to be in in sort of expressing concepts in, in their way. Yeah, I grew up in Toronto, but I, you know, was born in, in the Caribbean. And so I spent my formative years in Trinidad. And later in life, what I realized is that a lot of the language my parents used to describe certain things... <laughs> We're actually, now that we know it, are subordinate concepts. So, for example, I grew up thinking that all blenders were called austerizers. I, it didn't occur to me until later in life that an austerizer was a brand of a blender. I don't know. <laughs> but there's so many things I could remember from my childhood like that. And I think, you know, because of the Commonwealth and what was available in the islands, that's what people knew as a blender. Deborah, that's, a, I think, a great example. Sure. In some parts of the country, Coke serves that serves that purpose for 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 what other people would call soda or or pop or soft drinks. They you know people will use the word Coke not to refer specifically to Coca Cola, but it, it it is sort of 
It's it's not subordinate. It's more the basic concept of a, of a soft drink is a Coke. But that now we're jumping to another part of the chapter, which is the, the part on language. I'd like to talk about language if I can. So I've actually lived in in California where I grew up, which is where we called it soda. And I've lived in Texas where they call it Coke. And I've lived in Idaho where they call it pop. So I've had to go through this transition of, of learning how to order drinks. So that's that's been an uh, event. I, Deborah, what do they call it in Canada? Pop. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I've been I've been in restaurants in certain parts of the country where you say where I have said, "Can I have a Coke?" and they say, "What kind of Coke?" And what they mean by that is, <laughs> oh, what, wow. and the answer to that could be, the answer to that could be Seven Up, yeah. or root beer, oh, wow. or Dr Pepper, <laughs> or something. But when when they say what kind of Coke, they are referring to, they're using the word Coke as a more general category mm. for soft drinks for 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 what other people might call soda or pop okay let's take a quick break here and when we come back we will continue discussing chapter seven from the my psychology textbook cognition thinking language and intelligence the my psychology podcast is brought to you by launchpad from macmillan learning when i wrote my psychology i wanted students to maximize their connection to the science of psychology and Launchpad does just that. It's the one place where you can find the full ebook of My Psychology, features like My Take videos, chapter apps, and show me more links, and Macmillan's full library of resources, including videos, flashcards, concept practice activities, and more. Best of all, Launchpad includes the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System, designed based on cognitive research to improve your learning and help you retain information over time. In addition, the Learning Curve algorithm chooses questions based on your performance, delivering a quiz that is unique to you. If you aren't using Launchpad already, you can sign up for a free trial right now. That's right, you can get 21 days of free access right now by visiting launchpadworks.com and searching for My Psychology. That's launchpadworks.com. Sign up now for your 21 days of free access and start studying with the Learning Curve Adaptive Quizzing System. Welcome back. We are discussing Chapter 7, the chapter on cognition, thinking, language, and intelligence uh, of the My Psychology textbook. My name is Andy Pomerantz, and I'm the author of that textbook and a professor of psychology at Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. And joining me today are Dr. Alan Whitehead, professor of psychology at Southern Virginia University, and Dr. Deborah Roberts, professor of psychology and chair of the Department of Psychology at Howard University. I have another concept from Chapter 7 that I wanted to, to bring up and focus on for a little bit, and that is the concept of affective forecasting, which is, which is defined in the book as predicting how a person will feel about the outcomes of his or her decisions. In other words, this is when you focus this, this idea on yourself, your own affective forecasting, you're trying to guess, how am I going to feel if I do this or if this happens to me? We're always making presumptions about... Uh, how things are going to be great if this happens, or how things are going to be terrible if that happens, or if I'm able to accomplish this, then there'll be wonderful, wonderful consequences. If I don't, it'll be, everything will be terrible, et cetera, et cetera. There's a lot of research on affective forecasting, and the research basically shows that we tend to be pretty bad at it. We tend to overestimate how strong our emotional reaction is going to be and, and how long it's going to last. That's the, that latter Con that latter idea of how long it's going to last is called the durability bias. Uh, in other words, we, we tend to think that our feelings are going to endure after something happens in our lives, but they often don't. They, they, they tend to fade more quickly than we expect. It's so relevant to all of our day-to-day -day lives, this idea of affective forecasting. It can really make a significant difference in, in decisions that we make, in the sort of anticipation or, or 
expectation that we that we place on anything coming up in our lives, um, it can reduce a lot of anxiety in some cases. If you would have otherwise forecasted, you know, doom and gloom for something terrible that would have happened, but you but you sort of check yourself and you think, well, wait a minute. Realistically, if if this works out badly, how bad is it going to be? Just how bad will it be? It might be bad, but is it going to be catastrophic like I'm imagining? And is it going to last for days or weeks or months like I'm like I'm uh, imagining? Or is this going to be a relatively small bad thing that I'll get over relatively quickly? That difference can make a huge, that difference in, in forecasting before the event takes place, in my opinion, can make a huge difference on a person's day-to-day emotional experiences. To, to Deborah's point, it's, you know, with, with this population, as students are coming into college and their dating experiences are different, for example, and boy, when something ends, they just think it's the end of the world, right? And, and there are many examples when that becomes very tragic uh, for some individuals, but for, for most part, we feel pretty bad and we think this is going to be terrible. It's the end of the world. And we might still have some heartache later, but we're okay, but you're right. This this durability bias is we just think this is going to last forever, uh, and it doesn't. And we recover, and we're we're pretty resilient. That's right. That's right. If the research is uh, is correct, which I I believe it is, and I, I you know it, it, it again it can be maybe this is the clinical psychologist in me coming out. But when I when I think about just the sheer amount of anxiety that so many of our students go through, anticipating terrible emotional experiences when blank happens. Again, I'm not trying to minimize it. Sometimes things really are catastrophic, but oftentimes what we expect to be catastrophic just isn't. And you could save yourself so much angst and so much anxiety by sort of checking yourself. You might hear that forecast inside your head, but the ability to at least question it and think, wait, maybe it's not going to be that bad. seems really beneficial to me, um, potentially beneficial to a lot of students. So I hope they recognize it as such. Okay, so as we're moving toward the end of this episode of the podcast, do either one of you have another topic that you wanted to quickly highlight from Chapter 7? Yeah, I'd, I'd like to maybe spend a moment or two talking about the the theories of language development. I know a lot of students are familiar with the LAD, or we talk so much about the LAD, and some of them, you know, say LAD, which... <laughs> They don't really understand what it is, but just focusing on the language acquisition device because it's been such a such you know sort of like a steadfast thing in us teaching language acquisition and language development, and I think it's important for students to just recognize that that's just one theory and it's a nativist theory. Noam Chomsky is the person who sort of brought it to the attention of you know the larger sites the, the field. And it, it's still something that is a hallmark in especially developmental psychology, but we recognize it's incomplete. And so there are other theories of learning. But the one thing about the LAD is that nobody really understood what it was because it's called a device, but it doesn't mean that there's something dangling in your brain that, you know, you just press on and off and you have language and you don't. So one of the things I often say to my students, so think about the fact that you may have been born in one part of the world and a friend of yours is born in another part of the world. Both of you develop specific types of, of language or, you know, even we talked about dialect earlier. But if you were born, if, if you traded places, you would both develop that way of speaking or communicating. So 
It's not like somebody says, okay, here, I'm pressing this button and you will learn how to speak French. The language acquisition device is simply a way of saying we have the propensity or we have the ability to develop language or develop a way of communicating, of course, helped by the environment that we're in. It's just that I think nativists get their sort of, the fingers are pointed and they say, oh, people think that you're programmed or you're pre-wired with something in your head. But it really is just to say that we have the ability to do it. And I often mention the the click language of like South Africa, because that's fascinating to me. I'm like, you know, unless you're born in that culture, There's no way. I have not seen anybody develop it later in life because it's a certain way of not even speaking, but just a sound they make when they speak. You have to be in that culture. But the idea is that we're all capable of developing it if we're born into that culture. So I just like to mention the LED. Yeah, I'm glad you brought it up, and I'm I'm glad I'm glad you you you, uh, you explained that it's not literally right. a device. It's not some piece of equipment that is installed in our brain. That we, we the creators of the term use the word device to sort of I guess it's sort of metaphoric or analogous that to to there being a specific device or even a specific identifiable s- solitary part of the brain. But it's not a device. I can, I've had many students who think it is a device. It is a thing, you know, that, that gets installed in the brain. Alan, any other concepts from Chapter 7 that you wanted to quickly bring up? Sure. Uh, but just to backtrack, I just looked on Amazon to see if I could order a language acquisition device. <laughs> I don't see anything. So I was hoping I could be speaking uh, Spanish in two days, but uh, oh well. That's funny. I wanted to make sure that we that we touch on intelligence. Uh, I think this is really important in many ways. And one of the areas specifically that I spend time with my students is to talk about this theory, this idea of multiple intelligences. Too often, my students and even myself were guilty of saying, I'm not smart or, uh, or even I'm not creative to bridge to some other areas in this chapter. And, and that's just not true, right? It, is that so often we say, when we say, I'm smart or I'm not intelligent, we tend to mean I'm not good at math or I don't know a lot of words because that's the people that get labeled early in in our development as smart, someone that can do math well or someone that knows lots of words. And that's kind of it. And I really like to spend time in this and I have students do some activities related to multiple intelligences where they start to explore those ideas from Gardner and others that reference this multiple intelligences. And they start to say, oh, I am good at this. I'm good with music or I'm good with getting to know people or I can move my body really well. And uh, whether it's athletics or dance or something else, and they they start to to feel good about themselves. Right. Or, Or the other one that I hear all the time is I'm not creative. And I say that, too. When we, what we mean, I might mean is I'm not good at crafts, but I am creative in many other ways. Uh, In fact, I'm teaching a a creativity class this next fall and I'm really looking forward to it. But I, I think that's a really important one for students to understand that intelligence is broader than just math or words or this idea of IQ. Uh, is that we can look at things in a different way. And I, I think that empowers them in many ways. I agree, and I, I hope I hope one overarching idea that comes through in that's the, that section, the intelligence section of the chapter, is that psychologists are still debating exactly what intelligence is, 
and what it should encompass. Um, is it one thing or is it a lot of separate things? And if it is a lot of separate things, what are those things? Like what, what should be included on that list and what should be excluded? And I hope students will think critically about the intelligence tests that are, that are mentioned in the book. It's one of the Wexler tests, for example, or the Stanford Binet. Do those really comprise intelligence? Is there something missing from those activities? Is there something being overemphasized there or certain things being overemphasized there? Like, as you mentioned, Alan, maybe math or maybe some sort of verbal ability. Is there, are there other things that are being underemphasized or is it just right? Have, has, have the, the, the commonly used uh, intelligence tests really settled um, accurately on what intelligence truly is? I hope they'll think critically about it. I hope that students will see the sort of the lack of consensus among psychologists about exactly what intelligence is and how it should be measured and what it should encompass and, and think critically about it. So to Dr. Deborah Roberts and to Dr. Alan Whitehead, thanks so much for joining us today. And thanks to all of you for listening. We hope this podcast helps you learn and appreciate the material in this chapter. Of course, you should check with your own instructor to see what's most important in your own class. And for more resources for studying this chapter, check out Launchpad at launchpadworks.com. Talk to you again soon.